Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We've got a great interview for you today, David Korn, in just a couple of minutes. First, I just want to thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. All right, David Korn. He is the Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for Mother Jones Magazine. He's also an MSNBC analyst and author of the New York Times bestselling book, American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. David, welcome into the back room. Great to be here. Before we get into the craziness of politics, which there's certainly a lot of lately, I just want to peel back the onion a little bit and understand you as a kid. Were you always turned on by politics and journalism? Yeah, you know, I I guess it became... My mom was sort of like a, a, a New York Times devotee. We grew up... I grew up outside New York City. And so reading the newspaper and being informed was very important in our household. You know, I didn't think about it as politics or or journalism. It's just mm-hmm. like you're supposed to read the paper and know what's going on and read Time Magazine, whatever else we got. Um, and, you know, I grew up, I was, a, I was too young to, you know, to participate in the anti-war movement, the mm-hmm. civil rights movement, but I kind of grew up feeling there was all this ferment out there, you know, beyond the suburbs where I lived and, and uh, it just felt there was a lot of churn and even to some degree chaos that was unsettling. As I got into my adolescent years, I, you know, I, I took my love of public affairs and reading the newspaper and, and this unsettled feeling, and it became more coherent in, in a political manner. And I remember um, in 72, when I was 13, like being a big George McGovern fan. Mm. Nixon came to town. I got into fights with hard hat, hat, heads, hard hats who threw bricks at me as I put up McGovern posters um, along the Nixon parade route. And when, you know, Nixon came through town and he, you know, uh, did this motorcade thing with the open car, you could go up and shake his hand. I was, I went up and he put out his hand. I said, I'm not shaking your hand. If I could, I'd vote for George McGovern. <laughs> uh, and How old were you ser- when you did this? I was 13, and okay. a Secret Service guy literally picked me up like a cartoon and threw me in the air. Uh, I was not, you know, I was a pretty slim 13-year-old. And fortunately, I was wearing a backpack at the time, and I landed on right on the backpack, on my back on the backpack, and it cushioned the fall. So um, it was very Watergate, you know, started shortly thereafter, um, and that made me think about journalism. Mm. I, um, you know, saw what was happening in the press, Washington Post, Woodward and Bernstein, and and realized that one way uh, you could be involved in politics in the large sense, that is in shaping the world, was by promoting the truth and revealing corruption and, and wrongdoing. Um, and it just seemed to me that that was more fun than politics itself. You, being a journalist, you could call up people, ask questions, you get to write, 
you get to travel. Um, so that really put me on a journalism kick. And in high school, I was, you know, I, I worked for school paper and I declared myself an investigative reporter. And I did stories on the drug dealers in my school and where they got their, how they got their sort, their supplies, which is kind of interesting. You know, they were, you know, at some point it goes back to an unsavory character, even, you know, in a nice um, suburb of White Plains, New York. And I also did a story about the Unification Church, which was rising in that time and was big in, 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 in my region. And, you know, I you know, talked to people in Congress as a high school student, you know, about reporting, they were, you know, about reports they were putting out on the ties between the Unification Church and the Korean Central Intelligence Agency and lobbying on the Hill. And um, so I got started that way. How did the high school kids take to you writing about their drug dealing? That must have made you popular. Well, well, or was well, it anonymous? Kind of, well, I mean, I, 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 gave, I gave all the dealers some like, you know, all who I kind of knew, they weren't like my best friends, but I knew of them knew them. I gave them all um, pseudonyms. Mm -hmm. So I didn't reveal who they were. The whole point was not to reveal the drug deals, but to explain how the system worked and where the drugs were coming from, how they got them. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was mainly weed and hash um, back then. And um, the, um, you know, after the story came out, I got called to the principal's office and who is sitting there, but to detectives from the White Plains Police Department. They want the and, real names, let me guess. <laughs> yeah, and they tried to convince me that mm -hmm. um, I was not doing these people any favors by protecting their identities, that, you know, they were dealing with dangerous people and, you know, they were, you know, and if they could talk to them first, you know, and, you know, without arresting them, that that would be better for everybody. And I, you know, and the journalism advisor was there and was, you know, kind of siding with the cops in a way. Um, and I, 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 you know, I held firm. I did not reveal my sources. Um, and, you know, it kind of blew over. Mm -hmm. And the rest is history, as they say. You mentioned yeah. Woodward and Bernstein. I gather they were inspirations for you. And uh, if so, were there others during that time? Well, they, they are the ones that stood out, but what I really, you know, in the conventional media, but it was what I really liked a lot and what influenced me a lot was the Village Voice, mm -hmm. which was a great weekly newspaper at that time with some great, wonderful journalists, as well as columnists, as well as, you know, wonderful cultural coverage. Mm -hmm. So I, um, you know, every, it came out on Wednesdays and every Wednesday I walked the mile to the stationery store that had a newsstand. And I would buy the voice. And there was a lot of the stuff was about New York City and it was very much in the weeds. And I didn't always understand what, what they were reporting on or who the players were. Um, but it was always just interesting to read and try to, you know, see what they were doing that was in some ways somewhat somewhat different than the New York Times. And also in that era, Rolling Stone magazine was doing lots of wonderful investigative reporting on Nixon finances and uh, ties between fugitive financier Robert Vesco and American politicians. There was just, you know, they, they um, did great reporting on uh, Karen Silkward. That might have come a little bit later. Um, so that, you know, that was pretty influential too. You know, it was sort of the, the alternative 
countercultural um, reporting and, um, you know, that was happening in these places and places like Ramparts, which was a kind of a, an early um, version of, of, of Mother Jones or inspired Mother Jones a few years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and, and that was sort of through high school. Once I got to college, you know, reading Mother Jones and the nation and, uh, you know, the, the real paper in the Boston Phoenix out of Boston, I was going to school in Providence, continuing with the voice, uh, were very important influences to me. So let's get to the present tense. Let's talk about Trump for a second. Do you see this interview he did on Monday with Brett Baer as something new, unique, highly incriminating, or is it just more of the same Trump going on interviews here and there and blabbing up a storm like he always does? Is this something different? I mean, I don't think I don't think there was a strategic you know, pivot here on Trump's part. I mean, he often seems to, you know, to believe that if he admits wrongdoing, it's not wrong, or at least it's not crime. If you say it, it's not a crime. And, but I mean, I think ultimately he believes, and this is part of his narcissistic pathology, that he can't do anything that is wrong. So, you know, why not say it? Right. Um, I mean, he knows not to admit certain things, of course, but um, uh, even when, you know, I was just looking at this, um, the other day that, you know, you remember the Trump Tower meeting that happened in June of 2016, where top folks in his campaign, Trump Jr., uh, Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort met with a Russian emissary who said, you know, who they were told was bringing them dirt on Hillary Clinton as part of a secret Russian effort to help the Trump campaign. And they went ahead and met with her and they claimed, claimed nothing, nothing came out of it. I think the significance of the meeting was that the Trump campaign signaled to Moscow by accepting the meeting that they were, you know, didn't mind the secret Russian intervention in the in the, in the campaign and attack on American democracy. And in fact, they welcomed it. But th- that did not come out before the election. It came out about a year later. And when it came out, Donald Trump dictated a statement to his son that the meeting was just about adoption, right? Adoption policy: Americans adopting Russian kids which was a complete lie, uh, you know, that was not the point of the meeting. The point was trying to get dirt on Hillary Clinton, and that was indeed discussed at the meeting. Um, and so he lied about it. And then, like, I don't know, a year or so later, emails come out showing that that's not what the meeting was about, that it was about trying to get op- oppos- opposition research. And at that point, Trump just said, well, there's nothing wrong with getting opposition research. You know, you meet with people who... Say they have things to tell you about your, your about your 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 opponent. You know, of course you can do that. So like, okay, you know. So now you're admitting that you lied when you lied to cover up the meeting. Uh, and he just, you know, that moment in time, he just said what he said. I don't think he really bothers to keep his story straight. Mm-hmm. He believes that bluster is more important than consistency. Yeah. So he'll just change. You know, he you know, he's very much a. You know, in football with a quarterback, he, you know, an audible player. He'll look at whatever's happening at that moment, look right. at the line, look at the line of attack against him and say whatever he thinks he needs to, to 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 get out of that moment or advance in that moment, not thinking about what he said before, what consequences that might have for the future. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, another you know opportunity, another you know episode comes up 
And again, he'll just say whatever he needs to say at that point in time. Right. You, you mentioned he, uh, what he likes to say, uh, referred to as Russia, Russia, Russia. You mentioned that investigation, but you wrote a piece a couple of days ago in Mother Jones with uh, a colleague, uh, Dan Friedman. Yes, Dan Friedman. And the gist of it was that John Durham, who was brought in uh, at the Justice Department to oversee the investigation of the FBI's involvement in that investigation, that he lied this week when he went before Congress. Talk to us well, I didn't about say, it. Yeah, yeah. We said he made false statements to Congress. Right. You know, lying is, you know, is a whole, is another thing. And, you know, he, maybe he might have lied. And is, there a can, is there a difference between false statements and lying? Well, yes. There, there, I mean, there, there is to a certain extent. Um, you could lie on, an, you know, you can, you can make a false statement in error. You know, I could tell you um, I'm wearing a blue shirt and then you go before Congress and say, David's wearing a blue shirt when my shirt is red, mm -hmm. but you didn't know that, but it's a false statement, but it's not, not necessarily a lie because, you know, you did not see me and I told you I was wearing a blue shirt. Right. Remember what George Costanza told Jerry Seinfeld, if you think it's true, <laughs> it's not a lie. Mm -hmm. But um, in, in the context of this piece, he, you know, made two factual misstatements that were of a major, major points, major issues in the Russian investigation that it's almost inconceivable to believe he didn't know the truth here. Right. And, and you know, the first one was, you know, it regards the, the meeting that I just mentioned. When Adam Schiff asked him about it, he said, you know, that, that, that basically people made too much of this meeting and it was all a ruse and that they didn't even talk about Hillary Clinton at the meeting. Well, that's demonstrably untrue, uh, inaccurate, false. Uh, Robert Mueller cites several people who participated in the meeting saying that, indeed, they did discuss the so-called dirt that the Russian emissary, a lawyer from Russia sent by you know, a government official, had on Hillary Clinton. It was kind of convoluted and not clear what, what exactly she was talking about. And so it wasn't, it wasn't usable opposition research, but it was indeed opposition research about Hillary Clinton. So it was, it, it, that's what they were there to do. That's why they had the meeting. That's why they showed up. And, 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 and Donald Trump Jr. asked, do you have more on her? You know, can you explain this? Because, you know, it, it didn't seem to, to resonate with them. So that was just wrong for him to say that that meeting did not, you know, is sort of dismissing the significance for this meeting to say, well, it really wasn't about Hillary Clinton. So that was just outright wrong and demonstrably false. And then at another time, uh, a, you know, a congressman raised the issue, you know, said that, you know, the Democrats claim that, you know, there were contacts between Trump campaign and, and Russian intelligence, you know, and, and he said, in response to that, there's no, there's no such evidence. And that's a direct quote. There's no such evidence. Well, we do know that Paul Manafort, who was the you know, chief executive of the campaign for much of 2016, while he was chief executive of the campaign, met secretly with a guy named Konstantin Kalimnik. Mm -hmm. He gave him internal polling data from the Trump campaign, which Kalimnik passed on to, um, uh, to a Russian oligarch. And that according to... Robert Mueller, the Senate Select Committee, 
in a report put out when the committee was chaired by Marco Rubio, a Republican, and the U.S. Treasury Department, Konstantin, Konstantin Kalimnik is a Russian intelligence officer. So here we have, you know, again, you know, multiple, you know, government agencies, Congress, Special Counsel, and the U.S. Treasury Department declaring Kalimnik or Russian intelligence officer or, or agent, and there's no question that he, you know, and he used to work for Robert. Uh, he, used to, he used to work for Paul Manafort uh, when Manafort was a consultant and doing work in Ukraine. There's no question that Manafort met with him. That's you know not uh, uh, at, at at issue. So again, it's it's false. It's patently false, brazenly false to say. There's no evidence of contacts between the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence. Mm -hmm. It's the head of the campaign meeting with an identified Russian intelligence officer. And you would expect someone who spent, what is it, four years investigating the Russian investigation would know that. To know these two basic facts. And that's. You know, uh, you know, it, it, it's I, I, we put in our piece. It's almost inconceivable that he does not know this. Uh, why would he say this? I mean, he seemed to be echoing the general, you know, Trump false narrative mm -hmm. that there, you know, that meeting that that meeting was nothing, and there were no 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 contacts. And that was also pointed out in a sense when Congressman Ted Lieu from California was questioning him, and Lou pointed out that this seemingly willful defiance and evasiveness is an indication of something nefarious. And, and it's hard to escape that being the case. With regard to Trump, do you think we're at some inflection point now that we've been waiting for with him being a wounded animal, with him being attacked from you know all these people who are running against him, a lot of his staunch supporters in the party are running for the hills? Does this feel any different to you? Well, it's different, but I wouldn't call it an inflection point. I mean, I mean, you know, Trump's not out of it until he's out of it. Right. I mean, he can run for he can run for president. But is it a jail. dead man walk? Is it like a dead man walking kind of no, thing? I don't think so at all. Not with Georgia, uh, New York, the federal government legally. After I mean, him we, and, we, yeah. we don't know. I mean, we don't know what indictments are coming. We, we know the ones that have happened that have hit. We don't know when the trials will be. Um, the, the, you know, they, they're likely to be delayed and, you know, will he get to trial on the felony indictment charge for allegedly pilfering classified documents? Um, will that happen before the election? Will, will what happen before the primaries? Probably not before the primaries. Um, he's, you know, when will he be convicted? He still can, well, he still will run for office. Nothing's going to, I don't think any of this stuff is going to drive him out of the race. Uh, and there's no nothing that prevents Republicans from voting for a guy who's indicted. And it's even, I mean, we, we have never seen this, but even if he ends up being convicted, um, I don't know if that, you know, will stop him from being elected president. I mean, the, 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 the thing is that, you know, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you can't have a convicted criminal you know, someone in jail serving as president. And why is that? Because I'm sure the founders uh, could not envision this. If you asked Alexander Hamilton or James Madison, well, what would happen if 
you know, you elected if, you know, someone got elected and then he was convicted of a crime and, and, and sent to jail. Well, I think they would say, well, the obvious thing is you would impeach him. Congress would get together and impeach him. They did not foresee a political structure that was so riven with political tribalism and what they would call in their day factionalism. So, of course, rational people, whatever their political proclivities, would assemble and remove from office somebody who was convicted. Now, I don't know, would, 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 would Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene and all those Republicans vote to impeach Trump if they're in power next in next Congress and he ends up in the who's gal? Or would they not? And, you know, what happens? Would, would they, you know, would we, you know, would, would the vice pre his vice presidential pick, maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, you know, would they then invoke the 25th Amendment and make her president or whoever his veep is? I mean, we're in tremendously uncharted waters because fundamentally 30% of the country remains Trumpified. Right. They, you know, they believe all the crazy conspiracy theories from Barack Obama being a secret socialist Muslim born in Kenya to the deep state plotting to take over Twitter to control, you know, your minds and keep Donald Trump from winning elections and Russia being a hoax and all that sort of stuff. That's what they believe. And Trump still has, and as long as they, they're out there and as long as they're willing to vote for Trump, which they seem to be, according to polls, then... Trump remains a threat, a danger, authoritarian threat, an autocratic threat. And there's no way for the Republican Party, for the poobahs who are spineless to begin with, but if they should grow a spine, there's no way to really get them out if these voters stick with them. Mm. You know, it's so funny. I mean, it's not a Trump problem. It's not a Trump problem, ultimately. It's an, it's an American problem. Well, it's a Trumpism problem, which is... yeah. American. You mentioned the Constitution, and I'm old enough now to have heard for so many years that the Founding Fathers, they created this path for Congress, if there should ever be someone like Trump, Articles of Impeachment, 25th Amendment. And then someone like Trump actually comes along, and we realize that the Constitution provides no measure of remedy in a real meaningful way for someone like Trump. It does for someone like Nixon, perhaps, but not like Trump. And I don't know how we fix that. Well, yeah, I mean, so much of our system is predicated on rules and norms mm -hmm. and not laws. Right. Right. You know, a good example is when you go into the White House, you're supposed to fill out a government ethics report about any financial um, conflicts of interest you might have. And there's an officer in the White House who, if they see something, they work out an arrangement. You can sell the property, you can put a blunt trust, these stocks, or you can be recused on these issues. But if you just say, screw it, I'm not going to do this, there's no ethics cop or police that come knocking in and, you know, and, and haul you off to ethics jail. Mm -hmm. It's like, we just expect people to do these things because that's what the rules are. And that's what people have done. And, 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 you know, and, and the Trump people came in and they said, we don't, we don't care about that. You know, we're not going to, we don't believe that we need to follow rules. We don't, you know, one rule is that there needs to be distance, a post-Watergate rule 
between the White House and the Justice Department. Well, we don't need to follow that. That's the law. That's not in the Constitution. No, we've just taught Watergate in other times that this was what's best for the country. And so, but no, but Trump came in and said, I don't you know, want to do that. And now there's a whole movement in the conservative you know, uh, policy world to explicitly state that there should not be independence between the White House right. and the and, and, and the Justice Department. So when a Republican gets back in the White House, that he can control who gets prosecuted. Imagine Trump having that power. Right. So, um, you, you know, it, it's it, in Watergate, the Republicans, um, once the smoking gun tape came out, went to Nixon, Senator Barry Goldwater and others, and said, we can't support you anymore. This is just too egregious. You broke the law. Um, and you, we have it on tape. And, you know, and Nixon shortly resigned after that. Uh, it's, you know, it's inconceivable now, you know, after January 6th, that there's anything Trump could do that would cause Republicans to say that. They, they did not impeach him over January 6th. They did not break with him. He's out there saying he would um, suspend, you know, that they should spend the, suspend the Constitution and restore him to power. He's out there uh, amplifying QAnon conspiracy theory, which says that Democrats and others are satanic cabal that eats babies and rigs elections. He's out there dining with anti-Semites like Kanye West and neo-Nazi folks, uh, Nick Fuentes, mm -hmm. uh, and saying that he would, you know, he would pardon all the January 6th uh, rioters, uh, thereby excusing vo political violence and even encouraging it. So, and and none of that has them turning away from him. No, and 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 he, and he can go on Brett Bear on Fox and basically admit to taking documents and obstructing justice, and it still yes. doesn't matter. I want to spend our last couple of minutes just asking you one final question uh, about your piece last week on no labels and anodot. Because I think this kind of dark money shenanigans is really responsible for a lot of the bad stuff in this country right now. Yeah. Um, well, No Labels is a dark money group that wants to get ballot access for 2024, so they can come up with a what they call a unity ticket to run, you know, against presumably Biden or Trump or whoever might be there. You know, they claim they're against the left, they're against the right. People don't like Biden as a candidate. People like Trump as a candidate. So a unity ticket, you know, could succeed. Of course, it can't succeed. And they, you know, a lot of Democratic strategists and never Trump Republican operatives believe that, you know, this would more likely, this effort would more likely size from votes from Biden than, than Trump and, you know, therefore help Trump perhaps get uh, elected again. And um, no labels, you know, the thing about it, like, you know, many groups in politics, it's what we call dark money group, which means you can't see who's giving money to the group. Um, and, you know, that raises all sorts of questions about who's funding this and why are they doing this? Um, I did a story noting that the online, you know, processing firm that they use is actually a far right, far right firm that, that raises money for election denialists, Trump supporters, uh, you know, political um, organizations, nonprofits, and candidates, including Jim Jordan, Margie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, and Republican Party entities. And so that, what that means is the people who go to the website and donate 
because they like the middle. They don't like, you know, they don't want to be lefty. They don't want to be righty. They, they, they buy the line of no labels. Uh, go to their website and donate, say, 100 bucks. $4 goes to this company, Anadod, which uh, is committed to raising funds only, only for far right conservative groups and, as I said, election denialists and, and very Trumpy organizations like Charlie Kirk's Turning Point USA and Focus Family and, or, and, and, and groups that are advocating for a total abortion ban. So uh, that struck me as incredibly odd and bizarre. Um, and I, I was the first to reveal that. And it got a lot of attention on Twitter. Um, and it suggested to me that either they are not very savvy or they're not very careful. I mean, I, they, they would not explain to me how they ended up working with this organization, this company. Yeah, and you tried, you got the name of their comms director, but they refused to give you the email address, which is like ridiculous. Yeah, they, I, called, I, called their job. Them, I called up and asked for Marianne Martini, the communications deputy for No Labels, and they said, well, um, you, you, know, you should send her an email. I said, okay, fine. What's her email address? Oh, we can't give that to you. You know, I've covered politics for decades, and I've never had a political organization that would not give you um, the email or the direct line of its press secretary. Right. I said, well, I guess you'll have to take a message. And they said, well, we'll do that. And I never heard back from her. Yeah, well, David, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Take care. That's episode 88. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446, email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, or tweet to me at Andy Osteroid. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. And if you do like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wynn and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, David Korn. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. <laughs>